forgiveness last week. I can't help it. I got the giggles. I was listening to Steve pray for those little kids. And did you hear what he said? He said, dear Lord, we thank you for those little. And I swear he said farts. Didn't you? Did you hear it? We thank you for these little farts up here. And I started giggling. <laughs> I was listening. And then he, later on he says, and so again, we thank you for these little farts. And I went, oh, must have been me. But you heard it too? <laughs> I know you love to enjoy your freedom in Christ, but man, that is... <laughs> Written by Danny Jetson, age eight. And may, this may explain it. He's from Chula Vista, California. You heard where he's from? California. Third grade homework assignment to explain God. Quote, one of God's main jobs is making people. He makes them to replace the ones that die. So there will be enough people to take care of things here on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies. I think because they are smaller and easier to make. That way he doesn't have to take up his valuable time teaching them to talk and walk. He can just leave that to the mothers and fathers. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on since some people, like preachers and things, pray at times besides bedtime. God doesn't have time to listen to the radio or TV on account of this. Since he hears everything, not only prayers, there must be a terrible lot of noise in his ears, unless he has thought of a way to turn it off. God sees everything and hears everything and is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. So you shouldn't go wasting his time by going over your parents' head, asking for something they said you couldn't have. <laughs> uh, atheists are people who don't believe in God. I don't think there are any in Chula Vista. At least there aren't any who come to our church. <laughs> Jesus is God's son. He used to do all the hard work like walking on water and performing miracles and trying to teach the people who didn't want to learn about God. Amen. They finally got tired of him preaching to them and they crucified him. But he was good and kind like his father and he told his father that they didn't know what they were doing and that he should forgive them and God said okay. His dad, God, appreciated everything that he had done and all his hard work on earth so he told him he didn't have to go out on the road anymore. Uh, <laughs> he could stay home in heaven. So he did. And now he helps his dad out by listening to prayers and seeing things which are important for God to take care of and which ones he can take care of himself without having to bother God. You know, like a secretary, only more important. Now you can pray anytime you want and they are sure to hear you because they got it worked out so none of them is on duty all the time. Shift work. You should always go to church on Sunday because it makes God happy. And if there's anybody you want to make happy, it's God. <laughs> oh, this one's got to be for Kathy Wilson. Don't skip church to do something you think will be more fun, like going to the beach. This is wrong. Preach it, brother. And besides, the sun doesn't come out at the beach until noon anyway. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha,
<laughs> if you don't believe in God, now this is a thinking little kid. If you don't believe in God, besides being an atheist, you will be very lonely because your parents can't go everywhere with you, like to camp. But God can. Isn't that smart? That's a pretty good thought. It is good to know he's around you when you're scared in the dark, or when you can't swim very good, or when you get thrown into real deep water by big kids. But you shouldn't just always think of what God can do for you. I figure God put me here and he can take me back anytime he pleases, and that's why I believe in God. Amen. Well, beloved, we want to understand God, don't we? If we're going to try to live in a world that's created by him and governed by him, then we better understand him. And not only that, there is also an enemy of God, and one of the things that you and I need to do is understand him as well, so that we can learn how to fight against him. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. I came home from work one day and kissed my bride. And you know how the face of your sweet bride can be a giveaway that something is just not right? Have you guys ever come home to the look? You know what we're talking about? Well, I got the look, and instantly I knew something was not right. She said, come here. When you get the look like that, you dutifully follow. Amen? And she said to me, I want you to see your daughter. And there was Leslie. Some two and a half to three years old with a rag in one hand and a spray cleaner in the other. And she was scrubbing the living room walls, which had a not-so-wonderful new panorama of color, thanks to Crayola. Janet was fighting back the laughter, and she urged me to question the cleaner about the events at hand. So I said, what you doing, Les? And she said, I'm cleaning the walls. And I said, why are you doing that, baby? And she said, because they got crayon on them. I guess she thought I didn't know that. So I said, well, how did they get crayon on them, baby? And she says, well, someone wrote on them. Now, that is a smart kid. We knew at that point she was either going to be a masterminded criminal or a straight-A honor student. You don't volunteer more information than is needed. So I cut to the chase and said, well, baby, who wrote on them? And without batting an eye, she said, Skittles did it. And she kept right on cleaning. So I said, Skittles did it? And she said, yes, Skittles did it. That was the family dog. So we got the video out just to see if she would continue to do this, and we could catch her on tape. And she did. And we've got her on tape to this day, blaming the dog for coloring on the crayon walls. Now, you know she had to do that because Ben had not yet come along. Right? You know Bill Cosby, what he says about parenting. You are not really a parent until you have two children, because if something is wrong, you know who did it. Well, beloved, ever since the fall of man, man has been finding someone to blame. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, but it is an unwritten rule... At least it is in our house. But that's why men get married. Men get married so they will have someone to blame. Right, ladies? How many of you have experienced that? I've told my wife on numerous occasions that truth. 
I got married so I'd have someone to blame. And, and baby, it's not our fault. See, we have someone to blame. It's Adam's fault. That it's like this. Now stay with me here and I'll show you what I mean. You remember the story. God gave a woman to a man, right? And what happened? The woman was tempted, and she listened to the tempter, and she ate of the forbidden fruit, and she sinned. Adam, rather than lose her, chose her over and against God. When God came walking in the garden, Adam and Eve hid from God. God said, Adam, why are you hiding? Did you eat from the forbidden tree? And what did Adam say? It was the woman, and he passed the blame. But he didn't just blame Eve. Finish the rest of that sentence. It was the woman that what? You gave to me. If you hadn't given her to me, this wouldn't have been a problem. And men have been repeating that ever since. You see, it's Adam's fault. It's biblical for men to blame their wives. And all the men of God said, Amen. Amazing the things you learn here at Quail Ridge Church, isn't it? Of course, what did Eve do? She blamed the serpent. And if God had allowed this farce to continue, I have no doubt that the serpent would have blamed the fruit for looking so good, and the fruit would have blamed God for creating the fruit so good-looking. But God stopped it, fortunately. I share that with you today because it would be very easy with the area of study that we're going to have today for us to repeat this scenario. For you and I to pass the buck with this fourth cause of uncontrolled anger. And we don't want to do that. This fourth cause of uncontrolled anger, we've seen three. We have seen blocked goals can cause us to have uncontrolled anger. We've seen that trauma times, tough times emotionally where we get hit with uh, very harsh circumstances can cause our emotions to go out of whack and, and that can lead to uncontrolled anger. And last week we saw that an unforgiving spirit, things that we have failed to forgive, they lead to bitterness, a pressure cooker syndrome within us as we rewind and play and rewind and play the hurt that was done against us and we recharge that battery of anger until it finally reaches a releasing point and we beat up those that we'd least like to beat up and it's unforgiveness that causes that. Well, today we look at a fourth, and this fourth one is what we're going to call satanically motivated, satanically empowered anger. And the idea behind this is that somehow we have given control of an area of our lives over, specifically this area, and the enemy now pushes our buttons, and we seem to be out of control. And I hope you heard the key word. We seem to be out of control. We seem powerless to fight against the rage within us that seems to come out of us. Now, please hear this. We want to stress this before we go any further. The key words there were, it seems powerless. For the truth is, we are, in fact, responsible. Just as Adam was responsible, just as Eve was responsible, we are responsible in the area of uncontrolled anger. And having affirmed that, we're going to delve into it and see what God has for us. But before we go any further, I think you and I need to pray. Because we don't want to enter into any confusion here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for each and every one here. 
Thank you for each and every heart that is here today. And I pray, Father, that as we break open your word, you would be our teacher. Because we don't want to be people of rage. We want to be people of gentleness and kindness. People of life, the life of Christ. People of blessing. And in an area here where we could be prone to confusion and error, we pray that you will capture our minds and open our minds to see the truth, that we might walk in the truth. So we trust you for that. In Jesus' blessed name, amen. I want to say at the outset that what we're going to look at today challenges the status quo of what the church has taught. Don't get upset yet. We haven't presented it to you. With that in mind, let me say this. You do not have to accept what I teach here this morning. I never intend for you to walk out of here swallowing what I give you, hook, line, and sinker. In fact, you ought not to have that kind of an attitude when you come here. Frank can be a slick talker. And you don't want to just receive what I give. You want to have the mindset of a Berean. Remember the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. When they heard the Apostle Paul, they went home to search the scriptures and to see if what he said was true. That's the mindset that you need to have every time you hear anyone break open this book. You need to search it out and make sure that what you're hearing is the truth. If what you hear is the truth, then you better accept it. Your freedom in your walk depends on your accepting it and applying it. But if what you hear turns out to be an error, then just as surely you better reject it. Because if you don't reject it, you will be in bondage to a lie. So I pray that you have that attitude in you with this area that we're going to look at today. Satanically motivated, satanically empowered anger. Now the key to understanding what we're going to talk about here today is understanding the makeup of man. And the question centers on this. Can a demon dwell, live, be inside a Christian. Now the standard answer that the church has given to that over the years is of course an emphatic no. Now in determining this, the church has used certain words. They have used the word, for example, possession. This is what the church has tended to call this. When a demon is inside a Christian, or if that could happen, which the church has largely rejected, they would call that demon possession. The implication of that is that a demon would be inside a person. We want to use correct terminology if we're going to look at a study like this. When you look up in the dictionary the word possession, it is not so much the idea of an inside dwelling, but possession tends to mean what? Ownership. We are possessed by something, possessed by, owned by. Well, if this is the correct terminology, the correct definition of a word, is this a word we would ever want to apply to a Christian? That a Christian can be owned by a demon? Of course not. So let's reject this term. And when we get into discussions with other Christians about this term, let's define the terminology before we go any further in the discussion. Does that make sense? 
We don't ever want to say that a Christian can be possessed or owned by a demon. Because you and I graciously have been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ with his blood and we are owned by God. Isn't that a great truth? Amen. That's great. The other word then that the church has used is the word oppressed. And the idea behind this is that the demon is outside us, putting pressure upon us. Oppression from the outside in. The primary meaning of the word, in fact, means to weigh down. Now, if you were going to hold that a Christian could not have a demon inside them, then this would be a good term to use. An outside agent weighing us down, putting pressure upon us from the outside in. But my friends, I don't believe that that conveys what's happening in our struggle with the enemy. And I want to explain that to you. The key pursuit in this area, when the enemy goes after a Christian, is that word right there. Control. That's what the enemy is after when he goes after a believer. Now, if we use the model of oppression, we can see what he's trying to do. He's trying to pressure us from the outside in. But what is his ultimate goal in that? What's he ultimately trying to get to? To the inside of man, where the will, mind, and emotions are. Because when he can disrupt the thought process and stir up the emotions, those two, the mind and the emotions, will begin to work on the will. And his ultimate goal is to try to get the will to change. Do you all see that? So we could say that this is a possibility that oppression is an outside pressure with the ultimate goal of getting the inside to change. And that could certainly happen. But I don't believe that's ultimately what he's after. I think what he's ultimately after is this right here. He's after the inside. Because it is the inside where the seat of control is in a man or a woman. And that's what he wants. He wants to sit in the seat of control. Now the word that the Bible uses for this in the New Testament is not possession and not oppression. The Bible has a word for demonic warfare when the demons go after a Christian. And this is the word, diamonizomai. And the word diamonizomai means to be exercised by a demon. Now, what does that word exercise there imply? Does that not imply control? And where is the seat of control found? Inside the man. Inside the woman. Now, this is a thought that the church has fought very, very hard against. Why? The standard answer. A Christian cannot have a demon because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Right? First of all, notice the argument. He, the Holy Spirit, is in us. The enemy is where? In the world. Please understand, where do you and I live? We live in the world. And one of the things that you and I don't want to do with the Word of God is make a verse say more than what it says. 
That is a very common road to error when interpreting the scriptures. This verse is not saying that Satan cannot live in us. It is simply saying that the Holy Spirit is a greater entity than he that has his reign in the world. But it doesn't say that he that's in the world cannot live inside a Christian. That's reading more into the verse than is actually there. Secondly, well, we just said it. It does not say that the one in the world cannot get in us. That's reading into the verse. We will admit the Holy Spirit is greater. But that's all that the verse is saying. Secondly, well, the church has said, light can have no fellowship with darkness. I agree with that. Don't you? Light can have no fellowship with darkness. But again, we don't want to read into this. So let's define the word fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship is partnership. Light can have no partnership with darkness. Well, when we say a demon is coming into a Christian, are we saying that they're partnered? That would be ludicrous. So we can claim this verse, light has no fellowship with darkness, and all we have to say is the Holy Spirit will never partner with a demon. Of course not. But again, the verse does not say that they can't coexist. Well, light and dark can't coexist. No, this verse is saying that they are absolute antagonists. But please understand, there are degrees of antagonism. If we turn the light, right now we have a lot of light, don't we? And it is dispelling the darkness, so that this room is very bright. But if we turn the lights out right now, and we let one match, we would have a very little light. And how much darkness? A lot more than we have right now. Do you see that? So light and darkness can be a thing of degree. The thing that the verse is teaching is that they are absolute antagonists. And that's all it's teaching. It is not saying that the two can't coexist because they can coexist in terms of degree. And it is not saying that the light partners with the darkness. No, they are absolute antagonists. Just like the Holy Spirit and the demons are absolutely antagonistic to each other. Now what the New Testament does say is the Holy Spirit dwells absolutely in you and I. Isn't that an exciting truth? Because we live in a world that's filled with darkness. In fact, the New Testament goes so far as to say that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, what? You're not a Christian. Romans 8, 9. The key question, though, is where does the Holy Spirit dwell? And this is where most of the problem comes in. So if you've missed everything up to now, please tune back in. If you've gone off fishing, gone to the mall, please come back. Because this is where it is, right here. On another overhead. Most of the church... Functions that were under what we would call a dichotomous model of man. And all that means very simply is die means two. So we are two parts. We have a body and a soul or a spirit with those two words being used as synonyms. And the idea is very simple. We were material. We are also immaterial. God formed a body out of the dust of the ground. Then he breathed into it his breath of life and soul spirit was created. 
Now, this is our model for man. When you became a Christian, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit took up residence within you. Where did he take up residence within you? In your spirit. Then what did the Holy Spirit do? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. It says that he sealed you. Well, what part of you did he seal? He sealed your soul, spirit. Synonyms. Sealed, when you think about it, when you seal a letter, what do you do with that letter? You completely close it. It is glued together. And the idea behind that is what? Protection. That letter is protected by the law of the state that we live in until it is delivered to the one that you are sending it to. And that's Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. Every one of us has been sealed, protected by the Holy Spirit until the day that you and I are delivered to the kingdom. You talk about the eternal security of a believer. Oh, hallelujah. Yeah, see, that's exciting because you do a lot of bad things, don't you? Yeah. And you begin to wonder, am I saved? Am I saved? Would you like to tell us about some of these things, Jessica? <laughs> oh, Robbie will tell him. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so in this model, do you see why the church would say, no, a demon cannot be inside a Christian? Because this thing is sealed. We say, well, can they be in the body? Hey, gang, I want to let you in on a little insight here. I believe that demons are doing this sort of thing with our bodies all the time. And not just our bodies, but dead unbelievers' bodies. How do we say that? Well, I want you to just put on your thinking cap for a minute. In John chapter 20, when Jesus, in his spirit body, right, showed up to the disciples on the evening of the resurrection, what did, how did he get into that room? He has walked through the door. See, spirit can do that. Spirit can truck through walls. Spirit can truck through trees. Right? Spirit can truck through physical body. I believe that demons are doing this kind of thing all the time. It's no big deal. Zip. Right? Because the issue is not the body. The issue is the control of the body. Where is that found? The control of the person. It's here. Where the mind, emotions, and the key thing, the will, are found. Incidentally, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, and you and I are either transformed from physical to spiritual, or if we happen to die before that and we are resurrected to spiritual, guess what you and I are going to be doing? Yeah, trucking through trees, walls. You talk about rapid transit. I mean, this, I can't wait for that. And isn't that going to be fun? You know, pop in on your neighbor. Hello? I mean, I can't begin to. Doesn't your mind think like that sometimes? You don't think like that? All right, pray for me. Now, do you see then that if this were our understanding of the makeup of man, that we were two parts, we would likewise say, no, there is no way that a Christian can be demonized. But that, however, is not my understanding of man. This used to be my understanding of man. It's not anymore. When I got out of seminary, I held very firmly to the fact that we were dichotomous beings. Body and synonyms, soul, spirit. 
But as I study the New Testament more, and as I walk with God more, I don't hold to that model anymore. We look at a verse like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, which says, May God refresh you in your body, your soul, and your spirit. And when you look at that verse in the original language of the Greek, we find that there is a definite article there. A definite article is a mark of distinction. This is what makes the Greek language so wonderful. If I said to you, Anthropos, man, who would I be talking about? Anybody. Anthropos, some man out there. But if I said to you, ha, Anthropos, ha, Anthropos, definite article, now what am I doing? Mark of distinction, I'm talking about that man right there. You get the idea of how a definite article works? The man. Well, guess what? In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, every one of those things has a definite article. Tanuma, the spirit. Heipasuke, the soul. Tasoma, the body. Mark of distinction. What is the Holy Spirit saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 about the makeup of man? You got a body, you got a soul, and you got a spirit, and they are three separate entities. We can take that even further if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 4 and look at another powerful verse about this issue. Hebrews 4, 12, 11 and 12. Look at this. The Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it is able to divide between what? Soul and the Spirit. What does that tell you then about the soul and the Spirit? Hello. They're two different things, two different entities. Now, please understand, my friends, that in the church, this is a minority view. If you hold to a three-part view of man, you're going to be roughly in about the 20% of the church. The reason behind that is that 80% of all Bible passages use soul and spirit as synonyms. And so the church has tended to look at this and say, well, you know, this is the way the words are used most of the time, 80% of the time. Well, we probably ought to hold to that, that they're synonyms. In fact, I have a... Systematic theology book in my library that starts with this truth on the makeup of man. And it says man is two parts. We say this because 80% of all biblical passages where soul and spirit are used, they are used synonymously. But what that theologian did not go on to say is this. And watch this, please. 80% of those 80% of passages are where? In the Old Testament. Now let me ask you this. In an old covenant economy... Was the Holy Spirit indwelling man? No. So isn't it very easy just to say that they didn't need to know about an indwelling spirit? That isn't it true to say that in a new covenant economy where the key essence of the New Testament is that God now dwells in man, it is Christ in you, which is your hope of glory, that we needed to know about that in a new covenant economy? And that's why we have verses like 1 Thessalonians 5 and Hebrews chapter 4. Where is the Holy Spirit going to dwell then if we're three parts? In our spirit. So what happened is when you and I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, received him into our life, the Holy Spirit came into our spirits. And he sealed us there. What part of us did he seal? Spirit. Spirit. 
Incidentally, just to look at this other model then, this caused me another problem with that view of dichotomous. If he sealed my mind, emotions, and will, then my mind ought to function pretty well. Perfectly, yeah. How, uh, my emotions ought to be perfectly under control. And my will ought to perfectly choose to walk in light. But that's not the way I do it. How about you? But do you see that in this model I can be perfectly sealed? I can become perfect in my spirit, completely righteous in my spirit. The enemy can't get in there. And that will allow for my mind to need to be renewed. Why? Because it's not perfect yet. It'll allow room for my emotions to heal and my will to choose to not do it right sometimes. Because it hasn't been sealed. Do you see that? Well, you say, Frank, can we prove this? No. But I think we can support it. If you'll turn over to Acts chapter 5, let's look at something very, very interesting. You all know this story? This is the account in the early church where everybody just sort of loved each other and they were under great persecution and so they sold all their property and shared it with each other and... Incidentally, that's what's happened in, in persecution. See, when Christians get stripped of everything, when Christians are in fear for their lives, what does the body naturally do? Comes together to protect itself and support itself. Do you know when the church is the weakest in history? In days of prosperity and peace. Why? Because we just don't need each other. And we're allowed to drift apart. That's why any true biblical Christian would pray for persecution. Amen. And we're all thrilled about that, right? No, but really, I don't necessarily pray for persecution myself. But I don't think we ought to fight against it when it comes because God does some glorious things. And we begin to really love each other and depend on each other like we need to. Well, this is what was happening in Acts chapter 5. It, you, you were in fear of your life if you were a Christian. So these people came along named Ananias and Sapphira. And the key question here, I want you to, let's do this at the beginning. Was Ananias a Christian? Let's see some argument. First of all, he was in the church. Just being in the church in days of persecution is a pretty scary thing. It's not like today where you can play the church game. Do you want to go to church? Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. No big deal. But you didn't come to church if your life was being threatened. You counted the cost. This man counted the cost. He could be thrown into prison. Would you play that kind of game if you were a non-believer? No, you're taking your life in your hands to be in the church. Secondly, he sold his land. Why did he do that? To give the money away. You see unbelievers doing that? Well, he's going to keep back part of it for himself. Hey, he's totally free to do that. It's his land. God gave it. When he sold the land, whose money was it? His. If he wanted to keep back 20% for himself, that's fine. What was the problem? He lied. He said he was given all of it. Why did he do that? So that people would go, ooh and ah, and he'd feel good about himself. That was wrong. But he was still selling the land to give it away. Thirdly, when Peter confronts him, what does Peter say? You have 
lied, not to us, but what? To the Holy Spirit. Is that something you'd tell an unbeliever? These three things tend to lead us to say that he was a believer. Now, read on with what Peter said. Why have you allowed Satan to what? Verse 3. Fill your heart. Okay. The word fill is the word pleirazo. And pleirazo means control. Why have you, Ananias, brother in the faith, allowed Satan to control you from the inside out? That would tend to argue that a Christian could have a demon. Incidentally, if we go further, we look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, guess what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Guess what word Paul uses? Play Roger. And when you look at this further, we can say this, I think, it's not an issue of residence that's at stake here. It's an issue of what? Control. Now, who's responsible for that? Is this the devil made me do it? No. Be filled with the Holy Spirit is a command. Why have you let Satan fill your heart? Who's responsible? Ananias is. In fact, if you look at verse 4, he says that. You conceived the lie. You did it, Ananias. And you're the one that acted on that and lied. Just like it's your responsibility to be filled with the Spirit, it's your responsibility that you let the enemy in there to have control. We, my friends, are responsible for who controls us. How? How does that happen? Well, let me give you a possibility. We got a brain, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but your brain is a part of your body, it's an organ. Just like the liver, the kidney, the lungs. Right? Your brain is therefore different from your mind. I don't know if you ever thought about that. What part, when, when your body dies, your spirit soul is going to leave the body. Right? What stays behind is your brain. Does that mean you will be mindless in heaven? Did you hear that? So obviously your mind is different from your brain. Your brain is an organ, it functions like a computer, and what happens is the enemy, trucking through here, he tries to appeal and put thoughts into your brain. And the idea is to get after this thing called the mind. And he'll bring some circumstances into your life that'll try to stir up your emotions. Who was the one that killed Job's ten babies? Satan did, under the permissive hand of God. And how many of you know that'll drive your emotions up? And the whole goal here is to get behind the will. And how that happens is you and I, who have control, open the door with the choice of our will. And we allow the enemy into our lives. How do we do that? When that happens, listen to Proverbs twenty-six twenty-eight. You and I are like a city without walls. Like a city without walls is a man who has no control of himself. A city without walls. If a city didn't have walls, what didn't it have? Protection. Protection against who? 
The enemy. How did the enemy have opportunity to destroy? We had no control. Who gave up the control? We did. Now, let me say to you that this is very, very rare. In the area of uncontrolled anger. I think the block goals accounts for about 50% of our anger. Most of it. I think that the trauma times is about 10% because we don't face those all the time in life, do we? We have plenty of times where we get hit, but then we get some periods of, of pretty, pretty okay living. Unforgiveness, pretty high, about 35%. I think demonic empowerment is very, very rare, only about 5%. I don't think you and I, first of all, ought to be looking at that. We ought to look at the other areas of anger first if we're struggling with uncontrolled anger. And if we deal with the forgiveness and if we deal with the block goal issue and begin to trust Christ to abide in us and, and emotions begin to heal through the time of times and we're still struggling with anger, then there's a possibility of demonically motivated, demonically empowered rage. Well, how did the enemy get in there? This is how, I think. Vows of revenge. I'll get even. I'll repay you ten times. I'm going to kill you. See, vows, hatred, rage, sinful rage. The idea here is that anger leads to more anger. How many of you know that's a principle in the scripture? Sin leads to more sin. If you're coveting, what? You're going to steal eventually. If you're lusting, what's going to happen? You're going to act on the lust one day and commit adultery. See? And the idea here is you've got some uncontrolled anger and you don't deal with it. You are opening the door to the enemy with your will. You're choosing to sin and sin and sin with this uncontrolled anger. And eventually what happens is this enemy who is outside comes in through that open door and gains control of the will. And at that point he pushes the buttons from the inside out. And it seems as if we are powerless. It seems as if we're helpless in this area of just uncontrolled rage. And it's a fearful thing to see. If you've ever studied Matthew chapter 8, you know the Gadarene demoniacs were so violent that no one could pass by their way. These are people who just extremely violent and, and, and hateful and just spewing venom out of their mouth and out of their bodies as they abuse people around them. Here's another area where we've uncovered this. People wishing for power. Looking to become stronger. And guess what? You find what you're looking for. You go looking for it in the wrong place, I guarantee you you'll find it. Where are we to look for strength? To God. Where do most, of, most people look for strength? To themselves, right? And to others. When you do that, looking to other than God, you're very likely to find more than you're looking, bargaining for. I've seen this, I think, with uh, people who were sexually abused when they were children. And the idea is, that's never going to happen to me again. See? And they open the door to the enemy coming inside and gaining control of the will. Now, please understand, my friends, you are responsible for that. And you are responsible to break that power. If you open the door, what can you also do? You can close the door. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This is where that verse applies. 
And I'm a child of the king, which means I'm a prince or a princess. And what do princes or princesses learn how to do from the king? They learn how to rule. Who do you rule over, Christian? The enemy. And you can do that because he's a defeated enemy. If he has control over you, it's an illusion of control that you gave him. And you have authority to stop it. How do you do that? Very simply. You ask the Holy Spirit, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. And will the Holy Spirit be faithful to do that? You better believe he will. And when he shows you if there's a wicked way in you, what do you need to do? First thing, confess that to Father. Father, oh boy. The revenge that I wanted to seek against my bro- that person. Forgive me for that, Father. I claim your forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. I renounce that vow of revenge. I renounce that desire for strength so that I can protect myself. And I reclaim that area of my life, the area of my will, and I yield it to you. You alone, Father, are to have control of my life. Your Holy Spirit reigning from the inside out. I yield my allegiance to you. And I reclaim that ground that the enemy took. And I claim my freedom in Christ. Freedom to live as a gentle, loving, kind, holy human being. Because the life of Christ is in me. And that's the kind of life I have. At my potential. Simply by choice. No excuses to be a raging man or a raging woman. You and I can't say the devil made me do it. Any more than Lester could say the dog. I am allowing him to do that in my life. You're on the hook. And I'm on the hook. To walk in the freedom that Jesus Christ has provided us with. Amen? It may be the devil made me do it, but I'm allowing him to do it to me. (laughs) My friends, next week, we're going to complete this study on anger. And I am really glad that we're going to complete it. I don't know about you, but I'm about ready to ban kids from being in the service. My kids are learning this. I'll be driving them to school, and some guy will cut in front of me, and they'll go, block the goal, Dad? Little unforgiveness there, pup? So we'll complete the study next week with what we're going to call righteous anger. A fifth type of anger. The kind of anger that ought to reign in the church of Jesus Christ. And we're going to have more to say on that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we had today. I pray that there was clarity and truth. I pray that your Holy Spirit, if there's any lie or deception here, I pray that your Holy Spirit will snatch it out of the minds of your saints. Because I don't want to be an instrument of error. But if there is truth, I pray that your saints will own it and walk in the freedom that you, through Christ, have brought us, Father. By the power of your Spirit, may we walk in Jesus' name. And every saint said, Amen.